despite COVID wrecking havoc on the world and on so many families' lives, which is just an absolute tragedy, if there is a positive to be drawn out of any of it, it is that many people are now starting to get their hands dirty and understand the benefits of gardening. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. When we think of Tasmania, we might see the gorgeous Come Down for Air campaign, Hobart's very cool Mona, or perhaps more generally we might think of it as a mecca for foodies and sustainable food innovators, people like the wonderful Milkwood team on Bruny Island or Matthew Evans of Fat Pig Farm who's recently written a fantastic book called On Eating Meat and all about the ethics around that. But there's also an amazing team of people quietly working away in the state's northwest in Devonport who have developed a world-leading food plants database and community empowerment model and tool to dramatically help tackle hunger and malnutrition internationally and increasingly here at home by supporting local people to learn about, to grow and to enjoy a much richer and much more diverse array of local food plants. Joining me in conversation today are Bruce French, Carolyn Hingston and John McPhee, who are the powerhouse team behind Food Plants International and Food Plant, Food Plant Solutions. Welcome, Bruce, Carolyn, and John. Thank you so much for what you do. It, it really is just, when I came upon you, I just thought, oh my goodness, these guys are just amazing. And you've just done it so modestly and so powerfully for so many years. It's just incredible. Can I ask you uh, briefly just to first introduce yourselves and tell us about what you do with, uh, with the powerhouse that you're all a part of? Bruce, would you like to lead off? So I'm a local Tasmanian. Uh, two, all my life I've been doing two things, part-time pastoring churches and then being involved with agriculture. I did a degree, went to Papua New Guinea and then have come and gone over the years and lots of other countries as well. So now re- living in retirement in Tasmania. Fantastic. John? Um, yes. I mean, my background is in actually in agricultural engineering. I've worked in sort of pretty mainstream agriculture, I guess, all my life. And um, I became involved with um, Bruce's enterprise with Food Plants International in 1999 from memory when I joined the board of FPI. And then I was also around for the start of Food Plant Solutions. And, um, and I have a a couple of different roles in food plant solutions in helping to prepare documents, both the food plant type documents, but also some sort of operational manual type documents that we use within food plant solutions. And I think you also have a full-time job somewhere, don't That's you? That's right, exactly. 
I'm with the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, which is part of the University of Tasmania. Carolyn, introduce yourself. Uh, I grew up on a farm in Ryanna, in on the northwest coast of Tasmania, and have a uh, background in agricultural and agricultural production. I started with Food Plant Solutions in 2012 as an administration assistant, and uh, that has evolved to become the executive officer. And uh, I, um, I, uh, I guess, in many ways. Uh, drive drive the organisation and manage the organisation. Just quietly going about seeding the world. Fantastic stuff. Okay. Increasing biodiversity in our food and nutrition systems is a really hot topic these days, particularly on a heating and an ever more hungry planet. Biodiversity International recently published an important book on the subject and there's also just out uh, the State of the World's Plants and Fungi uh, published by Q Botanic Gardens International with many FAO and other researchers. And together, these sorts of publications call for a broader diversity of crops to ensure a resilient, sustainable, and much more nutritionally rich agricultural future. Uh, researchers from Q and from elsewhere have said that relying on a handful of crops to feed the population has contributed to malnutrition and left us vulnerable to climate change. Researchers suggest that overlooked and underutilised plants hold the key to future-proofing food production around the world. Apparently, just 15 crops, uh, crop plants contribute to 90% of humanity's energy intake and more than 4 billion people on Earth rely just on rice, maize and wheat. It's incredible, isn't it? Um, now, that... That sort of information is no news to you guys, I know. So I just thought it might provide a nice lead-in uh, to ask you, Bruce, you've been tackling these sorts of challenges about getting biodiversity and food diversity and nutrition diversity back into local food systems for something like 50 years. Can can you um, take us on a bit of a journey on, on about your story about uh, the food crops database that you've developed, where and how you started and... Uh, what the journey's been like. So I, as I've already said, I grew up on a farm in Tasmania, went to study agriculture, and we had to do practicals on farms. And I thought, what's the point in going back doing what I've been doing all the time? So I went to Papua New Guinea in 1966, fell in love with the place, I came back, did my national service as a conscientious objector, and then got married and took my wife and six-week-old daughter Back to the jungles in Bougainville, no road, no phone, no power, no water, and it was a lovely life. You actually had time. So then I got asked, would I go and teach at the University of Papua New Guinea, you know, the Voodoo Agricultural College, which is now the University of Conservation and the Natural Environment. And the students said, the last lecturer taught us about Australian crops, Australian methods. We don't live in Australia. We want to know about our plants put me on a very steep learning curve. And then they, for some reason, also sent me off to a nutrition conference up in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And agriculturists don't ever think about nutrition. We grow food. And uh, there for three weeks doing this course. Then they took us down to Karaka Hospital and there were 28 babies all dying of malnutrition. And they said, we don't think we'll save any of them. And I burst into tears and left. I had little kids of my own at that stage. And uh, I thought, why isn't someone doing something? So I spent the rest of my life 
doing something to help the kids of the world. And that something is developing this incredible database about local food plant species, particular to place and particular to local people's culture. Is that right? Yes, yes. And putting it all into accessible English, highly illustrated and getting it back to the people of the world free. So it doesn't cost them anything, just getting it all back to them. So when you were in, when you were in Papua New Guinea, were there still lots of mission gardens around and uh, were there mission gardens, still missions and mission yes. gardens? Yes, and they varied. Some were trying to grow temperate western crops in the tropics. Some had actually gone local and learned about plants. If you thought about your work going back to those days in Papua New Guinea, were there two or three crops that just made a huge difference? It was actually the CSIRO were going to do a land use study for the country and they chose 40 plants. And I contacted them and said, I think you've chosen the wrong 40 plants. You've chosen 40 plants that you know about, the climate, the temperature, where they grow, you want to print fancy maps. And why are you doing those plants? Why are you doing rice? No one grows rice. Why are you doing maize? They only use it as a vegetable. And they said, Rob, we'll employ you to go and find out what plants they are eating. So for nine months I travelled all over the country just looking at what plants people were eating and then sent it back to CSIRO for their land use studies. And so were yams and leafy local leafy greens really important yes, there's in that picture? Some lovely yams. When you're in a seasonally dry area, you need yams. They grow in the wet season. You store them for the dry season. 650 different kinds of bananas. 5,000 kinds of sweet potato, five different taro species, so lots of lovely fruit plants and dozens and dozens of leafy greens. So it was fun finding it all out. Uh, some of those, you mentioned biodiversity. One of those consultancies was with biodiversity and other groups, CSIRO, so I've done them with different groups. Yes, okay. Thank, thank you for that. That's that's fascinating. It's so interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? Nowadays there's an increasing focus on food and cultural sovereignty, especially for Indigenous people. Um, And the Nagoya Protocol of 2014 comes to mind about, you know, ways of accessing information and and using it in appropriate ways. Uh, Recently, Queensland has just reviewed and updated their biodiscovery regulations and protocols to ensure that Indigenous people have appropriate control over their plant knowledge and also so that they get um, access to any economic benefits from uh, development using that knowledge. Bruce, you're clearly firmly embedded in understanding best practice uh, and culturally appropriate practice. Have you got any sort of reflections or, or comments to make on how uh, the picture has changed around respecting Indigenous people's food plant knowledge over the last 20 to 50 years? The one that annoys me most uh, people who go and collect all the information free from village farmers, I better not name them, but you mentioned the name of one organisation a minute ago, that then charges you $25 to even see it on their website. They were given free by village people. A lovely um, journal in India is going around collecting all the traditional knowledge and putting it up on the internet free. So food sovereignty came out of the, the South America and Again, I was asked to give a talk on Tasmanian Indigenous plants, so the first thing I did was contact the Aboriginal people and get their permission and their approval and then sent them copies of everything I've done. Even in the last week I've had emails from Indigenous people working on uh, traditional plants in New South Wales, so 
I try and work collaboratively with them and I say to them all, I never make a cent out of it. I haven't made a cent out of food plants ever and I don't intend to. No, that's it's, a, it's about respect and walking the talk two ways with respect, isn't it? John, you're an agricultural engineer and, as we've mentioned, you have a full-time job with the University of Tasmania and you've worked with Bruce to help him turn the immense database of something, what is it, more than 31,000 edible plants into easy-to-read guides. Can you can you tell us about the family of resources that you and the team develop and um, uh, what sort of level of detail they include and what different parts of the family of resources, uh, who they're pitched at? Okay. <clears throat> so Bruce's database, as you would understand, is a wealth of information. Um, the approach that that Food Plant Solutions sort of uh, developed, I guess, um, when we first started, was to to tap into the database and produce um, publications, I guess, for want of a better word, that um, that might target a particular country or a region or a climatic zone within a country or something like that. Um, we, we started we started with a a rotary funded project in uh, Solomon Islands, uh, what Bruce, 2010, I think it was from memory or something like that. And my reflection on that was it was a really good experience in how not to run our projects. Um, we, we produced a, a compendium of the plants in Solomon Islands or 458 or something like that. Um, which was a document that was sort of intended for university type level. But we also produced some uh, cut down versions for schools and some pictorial versions for um, for sort of village use. So basically what we do is we um, we take information from the database, which Bruce has you know, very generously made available under Creative Commons. So we basically just take the information as Bruce has presented it and compile it into what's hopefully a one-page description with photo of the plant. I mean, some of the ones that have got more information, like some of the bananas and yams and that sort of thing, they, you know, they'll run over to two pages. <clears throat> but we try to basically devote a page to a plant and it gives information, you know, some, um, as Bruce has said, in plain English, it's not scientific language, um, plain English description of the plant and um, and where it, the sort of climate that it grows in, the, the edible parts, how you might use them, how you grow them and some nutritional information. So <clears throat> really we're not, we're not producing anything new apart from, you know, different to Bruce's database. We're just putting it in a different format and probably the most common format we've produced is a, a booklet which we we generally call the potentially uh, important plants of XYZ, whatever country it is. Um, and we aim to include about 40 plants in that book. And they cover the cover the food groups of of the starches, the energy foods, the legumes, leafy greens, vegetables, fruit, and some sort of miscellanea that covers nuts and seeds and whatever else, you know, bits that don't fit in the other categories. <clears throat> and the whole purpose was really to, to I guess, produce a, you know, I mean, 
having worked with it for so long, I'm overwhelmed with 31,000 plants in the database. So what we wanted to do was arrive at something that that somebody who's not got the background could pick up and they've got a, a sort of a comprehensible number of plants, if you like. They can cope with 40 um, and use it as some sort of a guide as to what they might do in their local garden or in some educational role or whatever role it is that they're working in. And that's, I guess, what we would call the, the upper-level publication, for want of a better word. And the other one we do, um, the other sort of next most common, is a pictorial um, booklet, which relies on very little, um, very little text. We try to minimise the number of words as much as possible. Um, keep keeping photos and um, both common and scientific names of the plants and we we know that a lot of the people are not going to be that um that familiar with the scientific names but we always consider it important to keep that information there because then anybody who's referring to it knows what particular species you're talking about and um and those little pictorial books are you know made pretty attractive and and their sort of target tends to be yeah, maybe people like village groups or um, village nurses, you know, the people who are sort of interacting at that that uh, sort of front line with the end users. What's really so powerful is that the information is about the plant but also about the nutrition of the whole plant. Is that right? Like the nutritional properties of different bits of the plant, which often in gardening info you don't get. Correct. That That's right. <clears throat> and... Um, and, you know, and, and Bruce would absolutely be the first to recognise that the nutritional information is some of the hardest to get hold of. Um, yeah, you mentioned the the three or 15 plants or whatever it was early on in the conversation that sort of provide the foundation for the world's food system. And those, those plants have been researched to the nth degree. Um, many of these plants that, that Bruce is documenting are... Um, I wouldn't call them unknown to science. They they have a scientific name, so obviously science knows about them. But they don't attract the investment that's required to investigate their nutritional properties. And so, you know, oftentimes we're we're left with, um, yeah, we don't always include plants that we think might be good to include because we don't actually have the nutritional information. Because when we select plants for our booklets, we do select them primarily on a nutritional basis. You know, if we're looking for a plant that's high in energy or high in vitamin A or whatever it happens to be. And so if we haven't got that information, it does make it a little bit difficult to include a plant. Having said that, though, you know, I mean, even within the the plants in the database that have got nutritional information that that gives us access to a few hundred times the number of plants that you mentioned earlier in the conversation so yeah despite that limitation we can expand the the the, um the selection quite considerably i mean our focus I, i did say it's on nutrition but quite clearly it's also focused on what's you know what's suitable locally that's quite incredible, isn't it? That means that people can access nutrients uh, from local plants that will do will grow well where they live, uh, and not struggle with sort of the mainstream sort of crops that we might think we should be growing. Obviously, there's a suite of resources you're developing there. How much time does it take you to develop one of those technical packs? And 
you know, the trickle-down pictorial guide and the poster? It takes, uh, we budget roughly that it takes about 50 hours to create the field guide, which is the potentially important food plans, and about 25 hours per picture guide. So you mentioned volunteers. Can I just quickly ask, um, Is uh, do, who else helps you? Do you have other students or rotary volunteers? Who's, who's a part of that team who helps you put it together? It's not all me. <laughs> we, we have a group of volunteers uh, who, who do, you know, a raft of, a raft of work. Um, uh, look, that's a really good question, and I don't actually know the answer to that. I, I know that uh, I know that when we did the Solomon Islands project, I spent a heck of a lot of time on it um, because I mean one one of the things that we we um, we put a great deal of store in is is sort of the quality of the production. And, and by that, I don't mean it's you know, meant to be a coffee table book or anything like that, but we want to make sure there's consistency across everything. And um, and so, yeah, I suppose a lot of the groundwork was done some years back now in developing templates for doing stuff and all that sort of thing. So, Carolyn, we've, we've met and chatted in various ways and fora over the last few months. Uh, can you just uh, tell us, how does Food Plant Solutions go about working with communities? Who contacts who and where does it grow from? Uh, it's a it's a two-way street. We are always looking for new partners because the reality is the more people that know about us and this information, the more people it can positively impact upon. So we are always uh, putting feelers out and encouraging everyone that comes in to contact with us to introduce us to their networks. But on a daily basis, we get inquiries from people all around the world, both individuals and organisations that are um, wanting wanting information from us. So it, it really, you know, it, it happens, I guess, fundamentally two different ways. Yeah. So, so can you tell us about, um, I mean, you've, on your website, which is very impressive, it, I think it lists something like 23 or 24 countries where you've had an impact. Can you tell us about the broad footprint of where Food Plant Solutions has focused to date, um, about how many countries you've worked with or contributed to and, and where? Sure. We've, had, uh, we've got materials for over uh, 30 countries at the moment. We've got uh, signed letters of intent with nearly 30 program partners all around the world, and it is it is literally all around the world. Um, we've certainly got quite a large focus in the in the Asia and Western Pacific type regions, you know, close to close to home, uh, but also uh, in Africa. Um, and and in more recent times, we've had uh, a focus. It it's became, became apparent to me quite quickly that our our initial focus, which was on developing countries, is just as applicable to our obesity crisis that's happening all around the world. It's interesting, as you say, uh, a lot of your work is in Southeast Asia and the Pacific and Africa. The the recent State of the World's Plants just highlights what incredible plant diversity those particular regions have too. So that's uh, all, all pretty spot on, isn't it? Huge and growing, 30 countries already, a list of 30 more partners in process or on the waiting list. How do you fund all of this great work? With great difficulty. 
um, it's it's I guess it's a, a challenge for all for all NGOs. The reality is that um, as much as as much as we'd like to uh, hand do it all for nothing, um, it's actually not possible to do that. The, the reality is that someone has to pay for the printing and um, shipping and translation and um, and and those sorts of things. There, there is there is a real cost. So we uh, we rely on on donations, uh, whether it be from individuals or, or Rotary clubs or community groups, um, to to help to fund these these projects. We don't we don't make any money out of it. We're not here to make any money out of it. We literally charge what it costs. Where there is there is no profit, and. Um, and, and I mean, all of that's fully audited. Where it's something that we're, you know, every every cent we spend is someone else's dollar, and it's something that we're really conscious of. So it's about, um, I mean, in an ideal world, we'd have a we'd have a sponsor, we'd have a you know, um, a, an international organisation, a major organisation that that got behind us and and sponsored us so that we could just get on with it. Because as it stands at the moment, we've got um, we've got People from about ten different countries, all reputable NGOs, that are waiting on twenty-three publications for us. That uh, that we're not, we're just not able to do at the moment. So, in the past or going forward, does the Australian aid sector or Ausaid or the Australian government contribute to your incredible, what is effectively aid work and empowerment work? Do, do they contribute to some of your projects? Uh, not, not at this point in time. We've we've met with uh, our foreign minister Maurice Payne and uh, the previous foreign minister Julie Bishop, and uh, both have been uh, extremely supportive, and we remain in close contact um, and, and with um, senior advisors from um, Alex Hawke's office, and we remain in close close contact with that with them, and uh, continue to discuss ways that we could work work with them. We've certainly worked on projects for other organisations that have been funded by the Australian government. For example, we've worked with uh, World Vision in South Sudan and Timor-Leste and that were um, AusAid-funded projects and we've also worked for a uh, child fund, Timor-Leste. So uh, we certainly have some history there. Fantastic. Carolyn, we met, uh, I think we met via email, via a connection. You very kindly got in touch uh, following uh, chapters that we both contributed to a book uh, about school gardens that Biodiversity put together. And uh, I think your Viet- your project in Vietnam was a really fascinating uh, chapter in that book. Um but I think you got in touch with me because you're interested in connecting with um, Australian communities, especially rural and remote. And um, as the years gone on with COVID and economic hardship and all the rest, um, you've really started doing a lot more closer to home, haven't you? And there's been a lot of interest around home gardening. There's this, uh, the COVID garden survey and webinars that sustained the Australian Food Network have run. Um and you guys are sort of right in the thick of all this. Can, can, can you tell us about the special Oz-COVID sorts of projects or new approaches you're trialling? Yeah, sure. So despite COVID wreaking havoc on the world and on so many families' lives, which is just an absolute tragedy, 
if there is a positive to be drawn out of any of it, it, it is that many people are now starting to get their hands dirty and understand the benefits of gardening. And uh, I think that is uh, beautiful and fantastic, to be quite honest. So we, uh, we quickly realised that these people, whether they be in Australia or literally all around the world, that many people are going to wonder, how do I grow nutritious plants? But also um, they may be in the situation where they've lost their job or they've got reduced income. How are they going to feed their families? And we all know, and it's been proven, that, uh, that gardening is good for a person's mental, mental health. So there's a whole raft of benefits. So what we've done is we've started to create what we call brief gardening guides that John and his team undertake. And they're for, a, they're for here and now. So as opposed to our potentially important food plants, which is a whole-of-year uh, publication, we create these brief gardening guides that list 15 edible plants from the five major food groups, three for each, and uh, they're plants that you can either grow now or grow in the near future. But aside from, from listing information about how to grow them, we explain what parts are edible and how those parts are used. We provide sometimes a photo, but we always provide the nutritional information and then we link that back to the start of the brief guide where it explains information about um, the, the key nutrients and why your body needs them and how your body uses them and why they're so important. So it creates a it's a, a, a the whole picture about, about gardening. Let's not just teach people how to grow plants, let's teach them why those plants are important for their health. And, and certainly the, uh, the response we've had has been just incredible. So can you give me a, a sense of the footprint of uh, which parts of Australia or which communities or towns or...? Quite, quite literally all around Australia, quite literally all um, as, uh, as far north as, as you could imagine and, you know, as far south as possible. It's, it's, it's quite literally been astounding. So those are uh, short, quick, uh, ready-to-use guides that are applicable to different parts of Australia that people can get in touch and uh, get this fantastic resource that they can use with their community or school or family. Absolutely. Um, in your international work, you focus on Indigenous plants and local plants and obviously similarly here, and Bruce mentioned he's been speaking with uh, uh, local Aboriginal people and, you know, uh, works works uh, comprehensively with them to, to discuss what they want and what's right. Um, what's, what's sort of a common mix of the 15 plants? Not, I don't mean listing the plants, but when you go to put together 15 plants for an Australian community, say Bundaberg, would it be a mix of... Would there be some commercial plants in there or would there be a mix of bush foods or what, what just give us a sense of the mix of commercial and or, or introduced plants as well as local plants? It really depends upon each guide's different. So it really depends upon what uh, the person who's requested it or the organisation that's requested it wants. So for some people they want uh, common plants which, which I, you know, which have health benefits, which have nutrients. So that's, if, if that's a good way of introducing people to gardening because they're known plants, it's not too confronting them. Um, and some people will want uh, a mix. 
I, I think probably there's there's more that want a mix of both known and and uh, lesser known. We won't uh, created any that are um, all Indigenous plants. We are not Indigenous specialists, and if anyone requests that, we're very sensitive about that. We we encourage them to contact their local Indigenous um, group because those people are the experts on Indigenous plants and how they're used in that region, not us. Absolutely not us. Great way to have a conversation and to connect in community around food and around local landscapes, which sort of leads into another question I had for you, which was um, you've mentioned the Fresh Food for Families project that you and your team have been supporting and helping run along in uh, Hobart, I think. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So in Hobart... Uh, there is um, an increasing um, migrant community from, from various countries all around the world and uh, a group got together, including representatives from Food Plant Solutions, that uh, recognised that many of these people have moved from a climate that is totally different to Tasmania and that they may wish to be growing their own produce but not know how to grow our produce, our common produce here or even less common produce. And so from that formed the Fresh Foods for Families workshop. It's a, it's a full-day workshop that uh, um, includes parents and children, and it explains what our local foods are, common foods are, uh, why they're important for your, for your body and how your body uses them, but then also how you grow them. And so we've got uh, videos and photos of these gorgeous little children, they've got their gardening gloves on, trowel and little spade and bucket and they're digging into planter boxes and they're planting these plants and uh, and then they, they get uh, seeds and, and seedlings to take home to, to continue it. And the response, we've done them, we've done them as uh, uh, community groups but we've also done them as school groups and the response has just been amazing, like absolutely incredible. And, and, and from that, we've written a, a workshop event guideline. And so although this has been targeted initially at New Tasmanians, it's actually a program that could be, or a workshop, sorry, that could be run anywhere in Australia for any group that wants to learn about gardening. Uh, because this, this guideline literally talks you through step by step of all the things that needs to be prepared, how you go about it. We have a Fresh Foods for Families manager on our committee. Um, she will support and, and provide assistance and guidance and it's certainly something that we'd love to see uh, more community groups, more organisations, Rotary Lions, etc., um, uh, get in and, and make use of. That's a, such an exciting sort of approach, isn't it? Because the different climates, apart from anything else, are big, such a big challenge when you find yourself in a new home, aren't they? Bruce, do you have? Would you like to comment on that program? Have you been involved in it down in Hobart or around the traps? No, no, I haven't. The nearest I've got anywhere near is some Karin people came up to our cabin in the mountains, and they were out foraging. They're foragers in Myanmar and Thailand, so I went up to visit them. But oh, beautiful! Okay, um, Carolyn or or John, can can you just uh, pick a pick a really common Australian garden food plant uh, that perhaps we just eat the 
the root of or just the leaves of. I'm interested in uh, one or two examples about of common food plants where we're not eating all of the plant or understanding all of the nutritional value of the plant. Are there some really good examples of where we're making waste of a part of a food plant that we should be eating more of? Oh, almost all of them. Um, <clears throat> I mean, one of the classic ones would be broccoli. Um, I'm stunned at the number of people who cut the stem out of the broccoli and throw it away. Um, it's to my mind, probably the best part of the plant. and uh, <laughs> um, But not only that, the leaves of broccoli are also edible. Um, celery is another good one, celery leaf. Most people just cut the top off and eat the stalk. Um, celery leaf is a, is a great substitute for lettuce or any other leafy green that you might want to, to put in a salad. Um, carrots. Also, um, not I haven't personally done this one, but carrot leaves can be, um, particularly the younger ones, can be used in a soup. Um, so yeah, look, there are there are lots of them. Pea shoots, um, you know, the the sort of leading shoot on a on a pea bush can be can be used in salads. You you probably don't want to go too overboard on that because you might upset the yield later on, but. Um, yeah, no, there are lots of them, and they're very common garden plants and and parts that are are not being used. Carolyn, do you have an example or two you'd like to? Oh, you're about? putting putting me on the spot. Uh, I guess the one that immediately comes to mind for me is sweet potato, and I know this is one of Bruce's uh, babies. Is the fact that um, the sweet potato leaf is just so uh, nutritious and and valuable, and uh, so many of us don't don't use it. And what's, what's nutritiously fabulous about that? Bruce is the expert on that. I'll, I'll dive <laughs> Bruce, sweet potato leaves. What, what, what's Almost all the dark green leaves are rich in vitamin A. Most of them, when they're cooked in oil, make, um, sorry, or rich in iron, most of them, when they're cooked in oil, the vitamin A becomes available. Folates, folic acid, forage, it's all the same word. So, all over the world, women are short of folic acid when they're pregnant and you just get the nearest dark green leaf and eat it. Um, I know when I did work up in Northern Australia around food gardens and uh, uh, traditional foods and introduced foods, we used to often say, if, don't, don't, don't focus on trying to grow everything if, you, if it's too hard, but just focus on growing papaya, bananas, sweet potato, cassava, uh, taro, all those good Superfoods, really, aren't they? Mm. Okay, uh, Bruce and John, is there anything further you'd like us to know about Food Plant Solutions or Food Plants International? We can go to your website, but is there anything else uh, that you'd like to highlight or share with our listeners? If you jump back to your beginning talk where you talked about biodiversity, I've done work with them and keep in touch with them. They and uh, World Food Programme, uh, lots of others, are trying to go back and rediscover all the plants in the world. And I think I'm getting very, very close to having every edible plant in the world listed, every country in the world. Some countries, they're working with them. So a Tasmanian indigenous one called kangaroo apple, the Russians are working with that. A Tasmanian indigenous uh, eucalypt, Cider gum, the New Zealanders are working with that. In Australia, we're too stupid to work with any of them. 
our history is foraging and we forage if we do the best. Even if you get up to Darwin, Aboriginal people are foraging. You go across the boat to the Papuan Plateau, exactly the same environment, wallabies jumping around and they're gardeners. They have 20 or 30 varieties of every plant. They all have names. So we need to go back and rediscover all those traditional plants and then work with them, select a better kind, a bigger kind, a faster kind, a sweeter kind, do something with them. We've got plants up in the Tenamide Desert, 100 times the vitamin C of a citrus. Why aren't we doing something with it? We've got um, and central uh, tomato and things. They are harvesting from the wild that are growing and all the cooks start using them and then they run out of supplies because they haven't grown enough, so they take them off the menu and then takes five years to get them back on the menu again. So we've got to think a lot more smartly, not just Australia but worldwide. We need to go back and work with all these traditional plants. So I send my stuff to every international organisation in the world and say get on with the job. Gubbinge and bush tomato and all these amazing bush foods. Carolyn can't keep up and I can't keep up. I'm getting getting requests from all over the world. Some are just nostalgic. The, the lady who illustrated my book in Papua Guinea 50 years ago contacted me and told me what she's done in the last 50 years. She's a brilliant artist and several others from Papua Guinea, a professor who consultancies with. But I'm literally getting, I had an inquiry this morning from the University of uh, Pennsylvania uh, and I'm overwhelmed, and half of them can't even intelligently reply. People in India wanting to get digital copies on, of the disc, and you can't even post anything to India at the moment, so the postal service isn't supplying, so it's a difficult area. You can put some stuff up digitally, but it's pretty limited, stuff on the internet. Well, congratulations to you. We're very, very grateful for what you have done and continue to do. It's just inspirational. Carolyn, um, perhaps I can ask you as by way of wrapping up as well, uh, and all of you, please please feel free to chip in and comment. Um, your story is a great story. The more people know about it, the more and more demand there's going to be upon you because it's just so important and so empowering to women, families and communities. So what, if anything, are your key priorities or needs that would help you, all of you, to grow the impact of what you do? What, what, how could the average person listening to this uh, episode uh, contribute to what you're doing or to help you? Well, the first thing they could do is, is to help themselves and to uh, make changes to their lifestyle so that, so that uh, they're growing and eating their own nutritious food or as much of it as possible. Um, the second thing that they could do is to support us in any way possible, whether it be uh, offering to volunteer with us or by making a donation or by introducing us to uh, organisations that would, would like to support us. For us to, for us to uh, expand, uh, we, we need more bodies, more able bodies uh, that are reliable and, and uh, are passionate about it and want to do it. That's really important for us. That, that if someone's going to volunteer their time with us, that they're doing something that they want to do, not something that's a real chore for them. Um, we, we just, we don't want that. We want people to be happy and, and to enjoy it. And, and for, for major aid organisations to, to recognise the importance of Bruce's database 
and through us uh, start implementing the information that's in it into their uh, projects. That 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 is a must. If we're going to see some sustainable change throughout the world, it is a that's, must. The resource is there. Let's just get everyone uh, knowing more about it and using it. Is what I'm hearing. Is that right, John? Do you have would, do you have a call out for volunteers or, or graphic designers or anybody you need to uh, help do what you do, or you're all on track? Uh, look, there's. I think Carolyn's really nailed it there. Um, you know, the 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 task ahead is pretty monumental if you consider it in a global context. And um, as Carolyn said, Bruce's database, um, you know, it really it really is the foundation of of going forwards. And um, so I think there are, you know, there are two two levels of activity that have to go on in in the broad sense. Um, <clears throat> one is the recognition of of um, the need to find the information that, uh, I mean, Bruce has tapped into innumerable sources to get the information that he's got in the database, but but quite clearly there's still a lot of work to be done to fill in gaps. So that's that's on the sort of information side. And on the other side, um, yeah, in terms of awareness and, and use of the resource, I mean, Carolyn, Carolyn pointed to it, um, yeah, quite succinctly in terms of of getting aid organisations involved and and um, but yeah not just aid organisations as you said down to the sort of local and individual level and here at home lots of rotary clubs and individuals and communities are getting in touch with you and getting growing as we speak um bruce would you like to have uh offer a final thought or a final word on uh on uh on the work you've been doing and and uh what you'd like to see happen uh, over the next few years. I had a good friend who late in life did his PhD and he said it takes about one year to read up well on a plant, so it only takes about another 32,000 years and we'll be home and home. On that note, we wish you good health and long life so that you can do just that. We love your work and um, we love all of your work and just uh, I just want to say a huge thank you to each of you, Carolyn, Bruce and John for joining us today on Nourishing Matters to Chew On and I really look forward to contributing to your work and sharing your story as we all grow on. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the climactic network of podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.